Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence So you'll create products that customers actually love and love more. Now, many companies are facing disruption, and they have faced it in the past. Of course, Uber and Airbnb are the poster children of disruption, but there have been many more as well. Kodak, not a name we think of too much anymore because it was displaced by the digital camera. Blockbuster's physical doors, well, they couldn't stay open in the face of Netflix and the virtual service they provided. Borders Books, a place I used to enjoy going to, it failed in the wake of Amazon. And at the same time, some companies have also managed to continue regardless of this disruption going on in their industries. Some examples are Best Buy and Barnes & Noble. We'll see what the future holds for them, but they're holding their own right now. What companies, both big and small, established and startup, can do to avoid disruption is the topic of this discussion. Our guest is Dr. Talis Tesseria, Associate Professor at Harvard Business School and Researcher of Digital Disruption. He has a new book out examining disruption titled Unlocking the Customer Value Chain, which if you know, I love customers and value and putting those two together, that title caught my attention. And we're going to dive into some details together. If you want to see a written summary of what we discussed, just check out the show notes. Those are at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 216, along with any links that we also discuss. Now, on to the interview. Talas, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chad. So you have an interesting book. It's called Unlocking the Customer Value Chain. In there, you address how through the digital disruption that's taking place, the startups are gaining a competitive advantage in consumer industries. And that established companies are at at risk of getting disrupted because of this and what they can do to sway that off some. Tell us about the background on on this book. How did it come about? So uh, I joined the Harvard Business School in uh, 2009. Mm -hmm. In 2010, I was invited to visit the first startup I've ever set foot on. It was a kind of up-and-coming social network at the time. There was this guy called Mark Zuckerberg who was uh, running it. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it's uh, now quite well known, but at the time it was pretty up and coming. I didn't use Facebook at in 2009 or 10. And when I visited there, I saw him at work and I met with other executives who took me around. And the question I asked was, how are you planning to disrupt the media industry? And they, as other executives, they said, we have a very clear plan on what we're doing. And they showed me and talked to me about the plan. And I listened. And uh, since then, I visited many other startups. I visited Netflix, Airbnb. I talked to Uber executives, even smaller companies like House uh, and Birchbox. I talked to their founders, and I always kept asking, how are you planning to disrupt your specific industry? And every time I would listen, Professor, we're doing it very different from the other companies. This is what we're doing. But the more I heard what they were doing, the more I realized they were doing virtually the same thing. Hmm. So the genesis of this book is basically... Uh, the accidental uh, uh, researcher of me finding a common pattern across many very disparate industries Uh of how they're disrupting their markets. They all say they're doing something very different, but there's a common pattern to it. And I felt that, uh, you know, it was a big aha for me. I felt that it was nice to put it into pages in writing so others could understand the common pattern because it's very hard for us to see it on the surface. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's the good opportunity there for startups or people wanting to be founders and work in startups to think about that path of what it means to disrupt the industry, as startups often do. And then for those established companies to think about, well, if that might happen to us, what should we be doing, right? I want to dive into that for sure. First, as I look, look through your book, there were three big concepts that stood out. And they happen to all be in the title and the subtitle of the book. And I think it's probably important for us to have some common understanding of terms. Like, for example, disruption. When we talk about disruptive innovation, it means a lot of things to different people. And sometimes people use Clayton Christensen's classic definition or other things. So, But that's one. Decoupling is another one. And then you talk about the consumer in this, you know, the consumer's role. So to make sure we're talking about the same things, can you go through what is decoupling, disruption, and the consumer role for us? Sure. Uh, Let me start with disruption. Uh, And I use a different terminology, as you say, than kind of the the pope of this field, which is my colleague, Clay Christensen. Uh For me, disruption, I use it very similar to what founders and executives uh, mean when they say disruption. Disruption happens... When you have an incumbent or established big company in any industry, and this company loses a significant amount of market share in a short period of time. So these are the two conditions. Generally, they lose it to a startup, a digital uh, disruptor, and it happens uh, relatively quickly. So in a matter of uh, three or four years, uh, Uber stole a lion's share of the market share of taxis all around the world that it did. Uh-huh. Dollar Shave Club uh, took about 40%, 40 to 45% of the online uh, men's razors market from Gillette. Right. Uh, in Sweden, outside the US and Sweden, we have a company called Klarna, a startup called Klarna, that in six years took about more than half of the market share of online payments from all of the yeah. banks and telecoms and other payments businesses. That is disruption. Few years, a huge chunk of market share. We're not talking about one, two, three percentage points. We're talking about 10, 20, 30, 40. So that's disruption. Okay, good. Thank you. Title of the book is Unlocking the Customer Value Chain. Okay. What is this customer value chain? So, so let's start with an example. If I'm buying beauty products, what do I need to do? So first I need to go to a store. The incumbent in beauty products in the U.S. and around the world is Sephora. So I go to Sephora. I look at all the options of beauty products. I choose a category. I compare products in that category. I'll trial some because I need to see if it works for my skin. So I'll test it, and then I'll choose which one I want to buy. I go and I pay for it. I receive it. I take it home. I use it. And if I don't like it, I dispose of it, right? So these are all activities in the process of acquiring uh, cosmetics, but essentially the same thing happens if you're buying televisions or cars or buying a service or going to a restaurant. There are certain activities that make up the customer value chain. Mm-hmm. Consumers have to go through the customer value chain in order to acquire the goods and services that they want. So that's the second um, concept in my book. Okay. Third one is this common pattern to disruption that I have identified, it is happening once you look into the customer value chain, and it's called decoupling. Decoupling is the breaking of the links between these activities in the customer value chain. Let me give you an example. So going back to the cosmetics uh, uh, value chain, uh, in 2010, 
2011, appears a startup out of Harvard Business School called Birchbox. And their proposal is we will make it easier for consumers to trial and test beauty products. How we will send to any person that subscribes to our service, pay $10 a month, and uh, you will receive samples of beauty products, of a variety of beauty products, such that you can test it. You can mm-hmm. test the perfume, put the cream in your skin, so on and so forth, in order to understand what products you might want to buy in the full-size uh, uh, package. So Birchbox decouples the customer value chain in a sense that it does not propose to offer all those activities that you would do with Sephora. It just does the sampling for you. And by the way, it does it cheaper, faster, and better in the convenience of your own home. So that is decoupling. Okay. So a similar example would be Zappos that eliminates, you know, maybe I happen to be someone that enjoys going to the shoe store and trying on shoes that other people have tried on. Or I might like the idea of saying, hey, I think those five five options look interesting. Let me just order them. They show up and I send back the ones I don't want. That- exactly. Okay. Now, now, uh, in your example, uh, basically Zappos makes easier a process, an activity in this process, but it doesn't do away with it, right? Mm-hmm. You still will trial the products, but you do it in the convenience of your own home. Right. It actually eliminates the need for you to go to a store. Yes. And once I looked at the customer value chain, I found something very profound that was very generalizable. It, it kind of uh, uh, was very mesmerizing to me that I'm an academic. But once I looked at the customer value chain, I identified that all those activities can be classified into one of three types. Either they are value-creating activities. So using the cream or having a shoe to use is a value-creating activity for you, as well as sampling a perfume because uh-huh. it, it's important. It gives me value. Another set of activities are value capturing activities. They don't create value for me as a customer, but they are what companies benefit from. Uh So when I buy or I subscribe, this is a value capture activity. And the third class of activities are value eroding activities. So going to the store is a value eroding activity for me because I don't benefit intrinsically in and of itself from that particular activity, Uh right? Uh, and so uh, what Birchbox and Zappos did is they eliminated a value eroding activity. Yeah. And that's one type of decoupling. Okay. There's another type of decoupling that enhances value creating activities. And there's a third type of, of decoupling that reduces value capturing activities, essentially makes it cheaper for you to buy your goods and services. Okay. So in the case of Uber, you know, for me and anyone driving traditional taxi cabs, sorry, this has just been my experience, a value eroded activity is the cabs are typically junky, right? They're just not clean. And there's this big barrier that just makes it a less pleasant experience. And I'm someone that likes to talk to, to the driver, right? And get to know wherever I am a little bit. And so that's a eroding activity, just that part of the experience at least my experiences so far with Uber have been much more positive that it's a clean car. The driver often wants to talk and tell me about the local area and it's a more pleasant experience. So, so Uber is quite a unique example because most of the companies that I looked at decoupled in one of these fashion, either decoupling by uh, creating more value or value creating activity Mm -hmm. by reducing uh, uh, the price to the consumer by uh, eliminating or reducing a value capturing activity or completely doing away with a value eroding activity. But Uber arguably does all of them. Yeah. Uber is cheaper than cabs. Uber is better, as you point out, better quality, better value. 
uh, more value than cabs, and it el eliminates the need for you to actually go in the street and hail a cab mm -hmm. or call a, a taxi dispatch company. So, you know, Uber is is it's an own category of actually decoupling in three aspects. But most of the other companies that I looked at does one of these. And I see the importance of that customer value chain and understanding that and then examining then, like I've used, you know, customer journey maps to or and empathy maps to try to understand the customer's experience, what we're feeling as we go through something. And an examination of that, we might identify pieces of that that we just don't really need that aren't providing value or we can do things a completely different way. That's right, Chad. And, and to be more generalized, no matter what company no matter what product you make or industry you're in, whether you sell products or services to individuals, to businesses, or to the government, mm -hmm. all you can do on behalf of customers is one of three things. You can execute it in a million different ways, but all you can do is you can create more value for customers, you can reduce value right. capturing activity from customers, or you can eliminate value eroding activity for customers, yep. right? So net, Netflix, Netflix started out just by eliminating that value eroding activity of going to Blockbuster to rent DVDs, uh -huh. right? And then over time, Netflix uh, uh, became cheaper than that by doing streaming. And it's now, you know, I pay $11 per month for Netflix. They're cheap. Right. And, and more and more what we're seeing Netflix is doing is, you know, procuring more quality content. So House of Cards and so on and so forth are increasing value-creating activities for consumers. So look at how this company has gone on a map to, like, as you say, on the journey map, but identifying where to add value. And there's only three categories of ways that you can uh, create more value, reduce value capturing activities, or eliminate value. Right yeah. That's all companies ever do for business, for, for individuals and customers. It's a nice, simple framework to have handy, right? To think through. It's like some of those tools like from Blue Ocean where we think about what can we eliminate? What, what can we add? What can we decrease? What can, what, what can we be additive to? You know, same thing, right? Where can we create value? Where can we change how value is being captured? And how can we eliminate something that's eroding value? Good. Okay, like that. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. The book has a couple really, uh, has three big sections. One of those is focused on startups and what startups can be doing to be a, that disruptive business. And Everyday Innovators, I'm going to have to refer you to the book, which is a good thing to do anyhow, because it's a great book to have and read and learn from. Because I want to spend our time really addressing more the established company for our discussion and focus on that. 
a lot of the listeners are in medium to large companies. A lot of listeners are in startups too. But let's put our time in the medium large established sort of business there and think about what they need to be doing to not be disrupted in this way. But first, I'm curious about kind of framing this, just to remind us about what's really at stake here for companies that haven't paid attention. And you shared a couple earlier as you tee this up, you know, like Gillette losing market share to Dollar Shave Club, that the you know disruption, these are significant market share losses. What's really at stake here? So in my sense, what, what's at stake is um, uh, the, the, the underlying element is, is disruption, as I said. What's at stake is uh, um, not small amount of percentage points in market share. Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, competition was as follows. Coca-Cola launches a product and it steals one half, two percentage points from Pepsi. Mm. Pepsi retaliates and, and, and goes to a new market and steals one, one and a half percentage points from Coke. You know, Ford launches a product, steals half a percentage points from GM. GM launches another one, steals it back. This, this, you know, back and forth in new products, new markets, new customer segments, new ad campaigns, you know, you, you see small variations in market share. Right now, what we're seeing is startups doing certain things that capture 10, 20, 30 percentage points of market share. And that's very destructive, right? Mm-hmm. What we've seen here is this past week, Sears trying to avoid bankruptcy and a host of other retailers uh, um, almost going out of business and some have gone we see GE, it, uh, the, one of the most valuable companies in the world. When I graduated, even 15 years ago, it had a market cap of $600 billion. Today, it has $60 billion, 65, one-tenth of it, wow. right? And other industrial companies are virtually in the same boat. It's not a GE-specific phenomenon. As you mentioned, Gillette, huge, huge amount of market share lost, and many other consumer packaged good companies are losing market share or stagnant without being able to move a needle in any regards. The list goes on and on and on Mm -hmm. because the game has changed. Right now, there are certain startups that are being able to steal so much market share. Mm -hmm. Now, the question that these big companies need to ask themselves, and they're asking themselves is, number one, we're being disrupted. Clearly, they can see in the loss of market. Where they get it wrong, in my view, is when they ask, what is disrupting our business? Okay. When they ask this question, Invariably, and I've asked them to executives, executives go through one or two routes. They either blame technologies. There's certain new technologies that they call disruptive technologies or innovations of whatever they, they might say. They think those are disrupting their businesses because they say, well, Amazon has these, uh, you know, cloud computing and Google has these algorithms and there's virtual reality and augmented reality and AI and 3D printers and drones. And these are the tools that are disrupting our business. So if they think that's the answer, what do they do? They go invest and build those technologies. And we have yet to see one one example of a company that was seriously disrupted, that invested in a technology, and then the problem went away. Hmm. Why? Because I don't think what what is disrupting their business is technology. The other set of companies saying, we are losing market share to Google, to Facebook, to Netflix, to Amazon, to you know, a host of other Birchbox, PillPack, Trove, uh, Turo, uh, Uber. And if we're losing market share to them, they are disrupting their business. What do we do? We retaliate, we compete in prices, or we try to buy the company out. Right. Yahoo was an incumbent in the search engine, one of the biggest companies. It bought about 60 businesses in the past 10, 15 years. And it spent billions of dollars and nothing solved their problem. 
Why? Because they bought a business hoping that that business that was disrupting them would stop the bleeding and it didn't stop. And so you, if you think a startup is disrupting your business, that is also not true. So it's not technology that's dis- disrupting businesses. It's not startups that are disrupting your business. What is your customers are disrupting your business. Huh. Your customers are the ones that are changing dramatically fast and they have new needs and wants or changing behaviors. And they are going out to startups to doing part of their business with them. As I said, in decoupling, decouplers are not stealing the customer away. They're stealing customer activities. And that is the problem. Okay. So the example that came to mind for me as we talked through that was Borders Books. And my Border book bookstore I used to enjoy in our mall here in Colorado Springs was just great fun to go into, right? It was a two-story bookstore. I love physical books to start with. And they always had interesting things all over the place besides just books. It was an interesting store to just be a part of. And then I did find over time that it was just easier to you know sit in front of my computer and see what was on Amazon. And I missed the experience at Borders. I still enjoyed that. But it was just a little bit more convenient. And as time went on, I found myself going less to Borders to look at the shelves, now browse online and just buy what you know I want and showed up in my house. As a consumer, my preferences tended to change because I got exposed to something new. That, that seems like uh, the, the shift you're talking about uh, that consumers are bringing, that our preferences change in part because we see something that just offers us more value and we start gravitating towards that over time. Is that fair? Absolutely. Uh, Chad, you are the disruptor. You disrupted borders. And executives did not say the same thing. They didn't see it that way. They thought that Amazon was disrupting borders. They thought that technologies like eBooks were disrupting borders. So borders invested Mm -hmm. millions and millions of dollars in its nook and invested in all sorts of other technologies to play catch up. And that did not help them. Right. It turns out that you and millions of other people's doing the same thing that you did. I enjoy Borders. Next time I'm going to go there, I'm going to go there, maybe have a coffee, but I'm not going to buy the book because I can buy it online on Amazon. It's cheaper and it's more convenient. I go to Borders to enjoy myself, right? And the same thing happens when you arrive at Boston Airport and instead of getting a cab, you call up an Uber. Mm-hmm. Or when you go with your family for vacation, say, let's not go to the hotel. Let's choose a place, a you know Airbnb rental. So you and the millions of others like you making these small day-to-day decisions are disrupting markets. And that's the big issue. You frame it like that. I am quite the disruptor because I've done all those things. Gosh, companies should fear me. Okay. <laughs> Let's say that we are one of those larger companies seeing this disruption taking place, and we recognize that, okay, maybe it's not in our best interest to buy the disruptor um, or try to compete head on or try to you know, be the lowest one on price. Um, what are our options? What can we do to help us to respond to this disruption potential? So, so Chad, if you had asked me that question... Um, A few years ago, I would say there's a laundry list of things you can do. But it turns out when I started really thinking deeply about it, I needed to think about, okay, so what is the problem? Consumers are disrupting. And how are they disrupting? Consumers are breaking the business models of companies. 
The business model of Borders is you go in there, you enjoy it, and then you buy a book. Uh -huh. Now you're still going there, but you're not buying a book. So you're breaking the business model of the company the same way that I'm breaking the business model of Best Buy when I go to look at TVs and I choose whichever one I want. And then I pull out my phone and I order the TV online through Amazon, what we call showrooming. Uh -huh. So if that is what's being broken, the business model, the solution has to be around the business model. So if I break your pen, what are your options? Well, basically, you can shout, fight, complain, uh, and do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, you either have to glue back your pen uh -huh. to keep writing, or you just have to live with the fact that your pen is broke. So, you know, in the book, I talk about many, many companies that did many, many things, but you can classify them into if you've been decoupled, your business model has been broken, you can either recouple, which is glue back your business model, or you can preemptively decouple, which is learn to live with the fact that your business model is broken. So those are the two avenues. To give an example of the recoupling, um, you know, way back ago when TiVo came out with its uh, a DVR recorder that allowed you to have be able to watch TV shows without watching the 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 uh, the the commercials, uh -huh. uh, all the broadcast channels decided to recouple by forcing consumers to watch the ads again. What did they do? They put the ads inside the shows. So the ads in the shows you're watching NBA or you're watching a sitcom, the ads appear in the corner of your screen. That is the type of recoupling. Same thing with WhatsApp came about and people started uh, using WhatsApp. Telecom operators decided to try to force you to not allow you to use Skype or app on your phone. That is recoupling. Uh, Amazon, you know, Amazon uh, um, decoupled Best Buy, but by allowing you to practice showrooming and Best Buy tried to essentially not allow people to do that by making it harder for you to search online, changing the, the, the SKUs and the tags and the, the barcodes on their TV so you can't scan it anymore or use uh, unique identifiers for their products. And they even thought about using signal jamming devices in the stores such that you couldn't use your phone in a Best Buy store. Obviously, that went nowhere. What Best Buy decided to do is preemptively decouple. They decided to say, okay, so let's not go against consumers' desire. They want a showroom. Let's make them allow them to come and showroom. And um, obviously, their business model was not ready for that. So they needed to figure out a way that they could make money, even if you and I just went to the store just to showroom just to look around and not buy anything. How did they learn to do that? They realized that they were creating value for another of their customers, which are their suppliers. So Samsung, Sony, Apple, any company that was selling products in Best Buy, whether you bought it on Best Buy or on Amazon, they were benefiting it. So they started charging for what in the industry is called slotting fees. Uh -huh. Now, Samsung, if they want to put 10 different types of TVs in a Best Buy store, they have to pay for each one. Essentially, Best Buy became a parking lot for brands. It's a good example. I wasn't aware that they did not have slotting fees before. No. Slotting fees are pretty common in grocery stores. Yeah, grocery stores, exactly. So they they took that business model into the electronics uh, uh, retail industry for the first time. Okay. Big companies have two, or I should say established companies, have two paths to go down. The traditional things you talked about, right? The traditionally, they, they will buy the competition, buy up the startup, try to integrate that capability. That stays off the bleeding for a while. And there's other problems associated with that, like integrating the culture and actually getting value out of that. Because there's been some big acquisitions that haven't produced any value at all. And then, uh, you know, competing on price, which you can do for so long and try to force people out of the market. Neither one of them address the actual value to the customer. Neither one of them are thinking about 
how has the customer preference preference changed and how does that impact who we are as a business? So recouple, we look at how we can respond to what was decoupled and the example of the advertisements now going in the, you know, in a picture in picture sort of thing. And then preemptively decoupling, I guess, once you start feeling the pain and you look around at what your options are reacting to that, like Best Buy did with slotting fees. Exactly. And the way I like to think about it is if you, if you decide to recouple, you are going against the customer's natural right. designs. You're going against that. And preemptively decoupling is going in favor of mm-hmm. customer's designs. Yeah, one seems to be extending the value chain in a positive way. That might very well impact your core business model. You know, rethink who you are as an organization. There's a lot of people that are leaders of organizations that are listening to this podcast too and have influence uh, in the organization. And they might see some of this com- coming in their industry. Almost everyone's fearful of, of someone in a garage you know, that's going to disrupt their business at some point. What would be your recommendation for these established companies to start doing now to help them prepare for this inevitability? Uh, obviously, if if the problem is customers are changing, you need to understand customers. You need mm-hmm. to map out the customer value chain of your customers in as much detail as you can possibly do, because therein lies both the problem, the risks, and the solution. So map out the customer value chain, and then for each step of that customer value chain, you need to identify where value is created, where value is captured, and where value is eroded. Why? Because those are the three possible strategies that you can take. Yep. Once you do that, the third step is making sure you reduce costs for the customers. There are three costs to all customers. Customers pay virtually any business. They pay with cash, with their time, and with their energy or effort. So how can you reduce monetary effort and time costs? And maybe, maybe technology might help there, but don't start with the technology. Definitely, you will need to, as you just said, update, innovate on your business model because those standard business models are being broken. Uh-huh. Right. So that's the process. And by the way, when I consult for large companies, more than 50% of the time, we are just mapping out the customer value chain and figuring out where value is created, captured, and eroded. Uh-huh. It's fundamentally important. That's the blueprint to understand how you evolve your business. And companies just don't do that. They don't have it. Uh, it's shocking to me, but that's the approach. It is something we talk about a lot on this podcast is the need to know your customers and what they value and that our job as product managers and innovators and leaders in product management is really to create more value for the customer. And in the process, you'll deliver more value to the organization, uh, put the focus in the right place. Mm-hmm. I I could get out my soapbox on that, but I won't won't do that now with you. (laughs) As listeners know, we love innovation quotes around here. I asked you to bring one for us and also tell us why you chose that one. So uh, I I like this quote from the book, Alice in Wonderland, in which when Alice is uh, kind of going going about and trying to to figure out where to go, uh, she she meets the Cheshire cat. Uh, The cat is on the top of the tree lying down and, 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 um, and she starts talking to the cat and the cat asks her, uh, you know, uh, where you're going. And Alice says, I don't know. And the cat responds, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just an amazing quote because that's what we generally do in our lives, not just business, but in generally in our lives, we think that that uh, Johnny Walker keep walking (laughs) approach to life 
just like just keep walking, keep doing. But um, if you do that, it doesn't matter, you know. So you need to know where you want to go, and that's the big question in life. That's the big question in business, and this time of, of disruption, the big question is uh, where do you want to go? Because that is what will dictate what decisions you make and what's important to make. And I just don't think that there's enough executives out there that really think that's okay. I need to be sure where I want to take this business uh, before asking for answers and what to do. It's a great quote. <clears throat> it's a fun one too, because I love that cat and uh, it's good for us as innovators. We, we need to know where we're headed, what direction we're, what direction we are pointing the ship in. So thanks for sharing the quote with us. Tell us how listeners can get their hands on your book, uh, as well as if they want to reach out and find out more about your research and working with you. Well, interesting enough, they probably can get the book on borders, <laughs> as ah. we talked about. So uh, <laughs> I imagine that's possible. But if, if you don't have time or you don't want to go to the store, Amazon is the easiest way to go there. Um, just uh, Or Google unlocking the customer value chain. Um, I, that's the way to do it. Um, if you want to learn more about my work or other aspects of it, uh, more recent stuff, things that are not in the book, uh, the website uh, of, of that type of work is decoupling.co. Co. Uh, also, you can uh, look at my uh, Harvard page, uh, Harvard Business School. Just uh, go in there and and search for Talis Teixeira. But uh, that's basically there. Great. And Talis, I will put the links in the show notes to make it easy for people to find that, as well as your book, which I will probably use a link to Amazon because we are also used to that these days. I encourage listeners to check out the book. If you're in a medium large company, really helpful to be thinking about these ideas. Disruption is coming. It is the topic that I probably have ran into more this year, 2018, than I have in the past. And I suspect that will continue now this year, 2019. You know, a couple of years ago, it seemed like everyone was talking about innovation culture. And now the topic is often disruption is coming. We need to be thinking about that. And a lot of organizations don't have a plan. So it sounds like a book to help with that. And if you're a startup, I, you might find some good ideas in there for you to rethink uh, the customer value chain. Talis, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Chad. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Talis at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 216. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.